This is Salt and Spine. Everybody's talking about community cookbooks now. People are finally having time to spend with them and really read them. And you see them differently when you have the time, when you're not just looking for, you know, a biscuit recipe or spinach madeleine or anything. You know, you really, you really see the details in it. And they are such great archives of people and places and eras. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. You just heard from one of today's guests, Amy Evans. I'm joined today by both Amy and Martha Hall-Foos, the co-authors of A Good Meal is Hard to Find, storied recipes from the Deep South. Teaming up on the book are Martha, whose first cookbook, Screen Doors and Sweet Tea, won the James Beard Award for American Cooking in 2009, and Amy, whose oral history work and storytelling projects with the Southern Foodways Alliance merge with her artistic talents. And now we have this book, uh, A Good Meal is Hard to Find. It's a unique collection of 60 recipes, each of them presented with a companion story about a person connected to that recipe. Mostly fictional, but as we'll learn in our chat today, there's some real-life inspiration behind the characters, too. Also along with each recipe is an original painting by Amy, bringing the charm of the recipes and stories to life visually. It's a unique work that the publisher calls a love letter to the Deep South with an eccentric cast of characters. Those characters include Estelle, whose recipe for butternut pound cake is here in the book, or Stella's Harissa Gold Chicken, or even Francine's Strawberry Glazed Donuts. It's a really interesting and unique cookbook, and we're really thrilled to talk with Amy and Martha about the process of putting it together and their respective backgrounds. So let's head now to our virtual studio, where Martha Hall-Foos and Amy Evans joined me earlier this year to talk cookbooks. Hi, Martha. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thank you for having us. Happy to be here. It's great to have you. Um, And we're here to talk about your cookbook, your joint cookbook that um, was just published, A Good Meal is Hard to Find. Congratulations. Everybody (laughs) hold up their coffee. (laughs) It's so cute. Love that cover of that book. So I'm thrilled to have both of you here to talk a little bit about your careers, your lives, and then, of course, about this book. We'd like to start by talking a little bit about um, each of you and sort of how you got to where you are today. Both of you, I think, grew up in the South. Is that right? Yes. I'll talk to each of you a little bit about sort of your career paths in a minute, but I'm curious just sort of generally what role food played in your lives um, when you were growing up. Can I go first? Okay. Yeah, Amy. <laughs> Start us off, Amy. Alphabetically, go first. Alphabetically, Amy first. So I think it's funny because, uh, you know, on our dedications in the book, I dedicated it to my maternal grandmother and my mother and my daughter And, you know, Martha has deep roots in Mississippi. I grew up in Houston, Texas, which I consider the South, but uh, I lived in Mississippi for 13 years and my mom's people are from Alabama. And so that is really where I feel like I have my deep, weird Southern gene um, that is connected to food. And it's funny because looking at this cookbook and talking about it since it's come out and all the work that Martha and I did on it and talking about family and we both have family names that are featured in recipes in the cookbook and talking about generations that came before and, and talking about my family, you know, so many Southern families talk about, Oh, you know, the legacy recipes and, Oh, this is, you know, grandma Brown's, you know, pound cake and all that kind of stuff. And my mom's family, our food, our culinary history as a family is really kind of based in competition (laughs) because there's a, you know, the, the, um, 
the painting in the book that's uh, Grace's Four Corner Nabs, the awesome recipe that Martha made for the Four Corner Nabs with the painting of the ham in the suitcase. And uh-huh. that's a real story from my childhood when my grandmother, Alabama grandmother, flew on a plane to Texas with a ham in her suitcase to bring it to my family home. And my mother, she thought she was doing something nice. And my mother thought that she was basically saying that she couldn't feed her own family. So it's it, that came into family lore. And another story about competing Thanksgiving dinners between my grandmother, Grace, and her sister, Mary, where they each wanted to host us in Decatur, Alabama. But they both wanted credit. So we had two identical Thanksgiving dinners one year at separate <laughs> right. houses with neither of them attending the other. So it just has been fun to tell those stories and um, remember my childhood. I used to spend uh, some time every summer in Alabama. And so I feel like those are my Southern bona fides. But then I also, you know, spent a lot of time documenting Southern food for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And so that has has folded into my interest in Southern food and the history of Southern food and then my painting of Southern food. I love that healthy competition around food yes. that was instilled at an early age. Yeah. Um, Martha, how about you? What What was your perception of food as you were growing up? I just always hung out in the kitchen because that seemed where all the action was. If you want to see who was coming, who was going, what's going to happen next, where the gossip was, that's where, you know, the phone on the wall with uh-huh. the long cord was. So if there was any incoming news, all of it was funneled through the kitchen. And so it wasn't so much about cooking. You know, that was the action hub. You know, if you needed to know where your grandmother was going to be going that day, where your parents were, what your brother was doing, it was the nerve center of the place. And so I right. just liked being in there. One of my first food memories is my great-grandmother, Mommy Susie Peaster Thompson, out at Pluto, had a big industrial, like, restaurant refrigerator. But they lived, you know, 17 miles from town. And Uh this is, you know, the early 60s. And it had those big doors with the double doors. And there was always cold fried chicken and Hostess Susie Q cakes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They were cold and, like, always really good. And she also had this funny thing that was a um, bottle opener on the wall, like a Coca-Cola bottle opener. And when you open the bottle, the cap would fall down and roll behind the refrigerator. And 30 years later, when the mammoth refrigerator was finally moved out, my Uncle John took it to Texas because nobody could part with it. There were so many Coca-Cola bottle caps behind it. It even had the Coca-Cola bottle caps with the cork in them. Wow. Oh, my gosh. It was just such the hub of all activity. So I I don't know if it was as much about cooking as knowing that was like the nerve center of the place. Sure. And I think, Martha, you didn't then decide that cooking might be a professional occupation for you until later I think it was I think I read it was around when you were helping your father after he was injured that you sort of started taking to cooking more seriously as a profession is that right yes and my dad fell out of a tree it's a long story and um, I went up and worked at Square Books in Oxford at the time they had a full cafe after I worked there for a while I'd read you know couple of hundred cookbooks and then moved out to Aspen and worked at a bookstore out there and read a couple of hundred more cookbooks. Uh So um, when you're 18 and that's the most I knew about anything. So it was like, might as well start cooking because 
that's all you know about. And it just sort of clicked for you then? I mean, then you go on to work at La Brea with Nancy Silverton. You just sort of, that that became your path at that point? Yeah, I, I spent a great time working at the Szechuan Gardens in um, Aspen uh-huh. and worked at bakeries in Vermont. And, uh, you know, if you're young and you want to travel, working in kitchens, you can always get a job. And so it was a means to employ wanderlust and also, uh, you know, people that work in kitchens are a lot of fun and a loyal group, too. You know, I have friends that I've worked in kitchens with, you know, 30 years ago that we're still friends. I think that was one of the things that really appealed to me about working in restaurants is that it's such a familial relationship. Yeah. Amy, is it fair to say then that your sort of professional food career path maybe began from like a documentarian slant when you started working with the Southern Foodways Alliance? Yes, very much so. Yeah. And it it was nothing planned. It all was just kind of a very serendipitous um, kind of coming together of my interests and where I landed and timing and... um, and, and you spent a number of years there sort of chronicling stories of people throughout the South and intentionally focused on food or it just sort of always came back to food? You know, it was very much intentionally focused on food. Uh, but what's funny is, you know, I went to Oxford, Mississippi to um, get my master's degree in Southern study at the Center for the Study of Southern Culture there at the university. And I did that because, you know, I had bounced around. I lived in Baltimore. I lived in Savannah. I came back to Houston And I kind of wanted another reason to go somewhere else um, since I wasn't working in a kitchen and couldn't travel from kitchen to kitchen like Martha. Um, So I decided graduate school was a good excuse to kind of try in another place. And I I always wanted to graduate school. (laughs) (laughs) I should have gone to school. (laughs) And I went to I went to the arts high school here in Houston and I have a BFA from an arts college in Baltimore and I had always been interested in the history of the South and the history of my family and the the program at the center there really appealed to me because of its interdisciplinary nature. So I knew that I could kind of test out my academic chops if I had any through, you know, studying the culture of the South, but then also they had the documentary program, which really appealed to me. So I went there thinking that I could stay creative as an artist and take photographs and also get inspiration for painting and whatnot. But then I got a a graduate assistantship with the Southern Foodways Alliance, which is a nonprofit based there at the center at the University of Mississippi. And when I started working with them in 2002, the organization was just four years old. And so they were just kind of figuring out really what their, you know, long term goals and missions would be. And I and a friend and colleague, graduate school colleague at the time, Joe York, were charged with documenting Memphis barbecue restaurants in 2002. And so that's how the oral history program kind of started. And so I freelanced for them. Um, while in graduate school. And then the first really formal oral history project the SFA embarked on was based in Greenwood, Mississippi, where Martha is and where our cookbook really came to fruition. So I spent the entire summer of 2003 documenting restaurants in Greenwood, Mississippi, and I got married in Greenwood and I still visit Greenwood. And uh, it just is a place that's really dear to me. But so to answer your question, I freelanced for the SFA for a while, and then I was hired full-time, I think in 2005, as their oral historian. And so I created the oral history program there. The mission of the SFA is to document and celebrate the 
traditional and emerging food cultures of the American South. I think they may have changed a little bit of that wording since I had it in my mental Rolodex. But um, yeah, so I traveled everywhere documenting, uh, you know, seafood industry on the Florida Gulf Coast and soul food in Chicago and uh, barbecue in North Carolina. And so that, again, to talk about wanderlust and kind of following your path, it, it, it is some, it's a job I never imagined even existed. And then, you know, I have a healthy sense of wanderlust as well. And it, it was a great way for me to get to travel and visit with people and eat amazing food and document these amazing stories. And so I spent about 12 years doing that and, and um, collecting, you know, first person narratives of the history and culture of the South through food. And during that time is when the two of you met sort of on the earlier side of that, right? Like in, in Greenwood, you and you, I think I understand that you just hit it off right away. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, yes, of course. So I, I, the, the 2000, summer of 2003 that I spent in Greenwood documenting restaurants there, Viking Range Corporation sponsored the project. And so, and they put me up in Greenwood for the summer for me to live there and work. And I first met Martha's cousin, Leanne, because Leanne worked for Viking and we shared cubicles in the, the office there on Front Street for just, you know, uh, stone's throw apart and got to be fast friends. And then Martha came out on what year did you come back, Martha, and do Mockingbird? The math is hard, but it's around. Joe was two. It's whatever year the hotel opened. Joe was two and he's 17 now. So 15 years ago, the cousin in question that was Amy's cubicle <laughs> mate is the inspiration for Lenore Ann's Delta hot tamale balls on page 82. And Leanne was present our first real meeting down at Pluto when we started working on this book in earnest and uh, cheering us on. When I first met Amy, I mean, it was just like you just sort of fell into the family. Well, and what's funny, too, is that and I have a picture of Hambone up here on my easel. I don't know if you can see it. I'm going to knock stuff over. But anyway, there's this there's this man. uh Rest in peace, Mr. Hambone, who was a shoeshine man at the Cotton Row Club in Greenwood, Mississippi. And he also walked around town passing out copies of the Greenwood Commonwealth. And you'd always find him on the street dressed to the nines. And he, the summer that I was in Greenwood doing that oral history project, he would get Leanne and me confused. He would call her Amy and he would call me Leanne. And so we were like interchangeable in Mr. Hambone's eyes and mind. And so we started joking that we were sisters. And so it could make sense and telling Mr. Hammond, oh, yeah, well, we're sisters. Of course, you get us confused. And then and I haven't told this story in a long time. But when I got married in Greenwood in 2005, we had our our after party at Club Ebony in Indianola. And I walked in, I got there kind of late because, you know, the, you know, bus of people went ahead. And then my now ex-husband and I kind of, you know, made a dramatic interest to Club Ebony. And I'm wearing my wedding dress, which was bright green. And I walk in and there is my father looking uh-huh. at me, looking back at Leanne, looking at me, looking back at Leanne. He had been dancing with Leanne thinking that it was his own daughter. <laughs> not, in, not in her wedding dress. Anyway, I told him my dad oh died my in gosh. 2007. And I told that story at his memorial because it was just so funny. that, And even my high school friend said, that Amy's wearing glasses. Why would she put on glasses after she got married? <laughs> <laughs> so funny. So, another, anyway, I, 
I talk about Leanne as family in the introduction to the book or the foreword, one of the two, and how her mama was so sweet to me and Leanne has been so sweet to me and Martha has been so good to me. And we really are like chosen family. So and also the first cake I baked in a bakery that I used to own <laughs> here in Greenwood was Amy's wedding cake, which uh-huh. was massive, massive red velvet cake. <laughs> <laughs> How many was it? Seventeen bottles. Seventeen, yeah, it was up there. It's Seventeen bottles of, of red food coloring to make. Mm-hmm. So, and Martha and Leanne and Carol Puckett wore big church Sunday church hats to my wedding. That was a good time. Anyway, I got divorced in 2014. So. Yeah, but we got we got custody of Amy, and that's yes, really cool. <laughs> yes, sure. Now, before that, and then I want to get to the book, but before that, Martha, you had a, a job working in cookbooks at Pillsbury. Is that right? In Minneapolis? Yes. Mm-hmm. Was that and your first sort of professional working on cookbooks role? Yes. And yeah. it was a great experience. It was also really funny because in Minneapolis, Pillsbury has two big towers downtown. Uh-huh. And I worked like on the 32nd floor or something. I had a little kitchen and would develop recipes. But it was such a great boot camp, I think, for cookbook writers because you have to make a recipe that is going to be successful for everybody. And I always have this sort of imaginary person I'm writing for when I do a recipe that I call Susie and Topeka. I did the little little books that are at the checkout stand at the grocery store. I would have a title, Casseroles. So you have to come up with 50 casserole recipes and then there's a photo. So you got to work in the photo studio and learn how all that works. And Jackie Sheehan and Andy Bidwell were just wonderful to work with. But coming up with 50 casseroles takes a while and it's all on your family. You know, my husband was like, look, I want some meat. I want some vegetables. I want some rice or potatoes. I don't want them all in the same. I mean, we were eating casseroles, but then You'd get a great title like, oh, it's going to be a grilling book. And then every day the butcher shop would arrive with this giant cooler. And my husband was like, this is awesome, you know. <laughs> but um, it was a great experience working working with them because you really have to consider you're not preaching to the choir. You're sending out something for everybody and you want everybody to have a successful experience. And, you know, somebody takes the time to buy the ingredients, take the time to make something. It's not for you. You know, you're you're it's for them to have something to share with other people or just to, you know, eat a whole pie themselves, you know, whatever they want to do. But um working for them was a great experience, you know, and you can't really complain about a job. At the time Pillsbury had been bought by Diageo, which is a big concern and they owned a lot of liquor brands like Bailey's. And so if you have to go to work and come up with Haagen-Dazs ice cream and Bailey's milkshakes for like, that's your job for a week. <laughs> it's like, sorry, I've got to drink boozy milkshakes for a week. You know, right. So it, it was a great experience. And um, I learned so much. And also to take into consideration who's going to be doing it, because it's not like you're just telling somebody a story. You're asking them to do something. And at the end of it, you're asking them to consume it. So it's really an intimate relationship. And I, I really learned a lot about that working for them. Yeah. 
So this this most recent book that you two worked on together, A Good Meal is Hard to Find, has recipes that Martha um, developed along with Amy, your art, um, documenting Southern life and, and particularly, I think, Southern, we could say Southern ingredients, Southern food things. Am I right to say that the idea sort of came from the art first, that Amy, you were making some of this art and then the idea for the cookbook came from there? Can you tell us how that how it sort of came to be that this book would exist like this. Yeah. So I have been making these paintings for a long time, kind of working in this style. Um, a lot of my oral history field work for the SFA inspired some of the paintings. Like there's a lot of Florida in the book and that's all from some really intense field work excursions I made to Apalachicola, Florida and some amazing relationships I made as a result of that. Um, and so anyway, and so I just kind of, I fell into this way of working and I, started, these stories kind of started coming up as I would work, you know, I'd be like, who would be this person who would have a can of hairspray and some pedophores? Like who would, who would do that? And so I started creating these one sentence titles to kind of give a little bit of backstory and intrigue to the image. And I just love that way of working. It was really versatile, really open-ended. I could do, you know, it just like, you can just keep building on it. It's a, it's a theme that doesn't have an end really. And so I kept working that way. And then uh, I moved back here to Houston in 2014, and Martha called me one day and said, you know, Amy, the, the titles of your paintings would make really great recipe headnotes. And I was not in a receptive mood, I suppose, that day. Yes, and so I much. just, I know, I don't know. And it, it just kind of, you know, I was like, yeah, well, and, you know, what else? You know, let's talk about the next thing. And then I went to this um, Southern Food Writers Conference in Knoxville, and they had a panel on collaboration. And then that's when it, the light bulb went off. I was like, oh, this is what she was talking about. And so I texted her from the audience in that panel. And I was like, is is this what you mean? Like, you want to do this together? And she was like, duh, Amy, yes. <laughs> and so <laughs> then, it, you know, it just it, it made all the sense in the world. And when we really started talking about it, like it was just such a natural coming together it just all of fell into place. Uh, it was it was just such a dream collaboration. And so, yeah, and that is the the quirky kind of elevator one sentence pitch about the book is that the paintings did come first. And to Martha's credit, like she did not balk at you know creating a recipe that uses bisquick because I have a painting of a vintage bisquick box, or you sure. know. My favorite recipe in the book is the fried baby corn because I painted a picture of a can of baby corn and Martha did not skip a beat and said, of course, we're going to fry some baby corn and it's going to be amazing. And it is amazing. And so that's what really made it so fun. And then once we had kind of the recipe um, ideas in place that were in response to the painting, then we worked together to create the head notes and elaborate on my original painting title. So all the original painting titles are part of each head note. They're in there somewhere. And then we just talked about the characters and why, you know, somebody would fry a can of baby corn or why somebody would put hairspray on their pedophores. And so it just, you know, our sensibilities are such that, you know, we just, we just had a ball in every, you know, way, shape and form and process in doing this book. It's, and it's just really, it's so satisfying to see it all come together and see people's reception of it because it's been really sweet to hear from people who I've heard now heard from two people who talk about how they and their partners read the head notes to each other in bed at night. You know, that it's not just a cookbook. It's something that people really are relating to on a really 
personal level um, that's just bringing up so much for them. And people are sharing such amazing stories with us. And it has just, it's been everything I think we would have wanted to, to happen with it being out there in the world. I mean, it's really been great. And there are, what, five new paintings yeah, yeah, five or six new paintings because it, when laying out the cookbook, we had like a hole where we needed another savory something or we needed another dessert. And sure. so there are a few examples where the recipe came first and then I illustrated the recipe, which was also a fun way to work, it turns out, because it kind of, you know, it, it goes both ways, which if we do a follow up, it will be a really fun follow up because I'll get to do more painting. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And these little these characters and these vignettes that we see with each recipe they're mostly fictional is that right? Some of them are maybe influenced by real life stories. Yeah, it's a smattering of both. Um, uh-huh. and I think, you know, definitely you know, some Is of the there person- really a line between the two? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and you know, like my grandmother, my paternal grandmother Marjorie Evans, she's early in the book with the cocktail Marge's usual measurements. If I hear Marge's usual sunrise, that's this painting is about my grandmother because she was really, um, really, uh, what is the word that I cannot find in my brain? Um, obsessive, I guess, really obsessive about her uh, nutritional intake later in life. And she lived okay. to be 95, but she would, every day she would have salmon, every day she would have, you know, uh, Fresca every day she would have, you know, and it was very methodical. And one, one time I went to visit her and she was like, you know, I don't indulge very much, but if I'm going to have a drink, it's going to be vodka. And if I'm going to have something sweet, it's going to be chocolate ice cream. And so it just like, she just was like, and so, you know, that is about her. And there are other, you know, hints definitely to personalities of people I know in my life and a few friends that, and relatives that Martha and I folded in. Um, and a few, nice young men that we have in there too. It's not just all the ladies. There are a few nice boys in there too. But um, yeah, I mean, I think if, if maybe not all literal portraits of people we know, they're definitely influenced by a lot of people we know. I, I think one of the new ones, there's a recipe that's Georgia Kay's green bean millefoy, which, you know, are the little Italian glass beads that are made. And mm-hmm. um, my friend, Kay Anderson comes from this long line of legendary Yazoo County cooks. And for every bridal shower, baby shower, after the funeral, repast, whatever, they would make these wonderful snacks that sound insane. But it's uh, white bread with the crust cut off. You roll it out with a rolling pin and then you put three green bean, marinated green beans in it and some Durkee's famous salad dressing and roll them up and then cut them into little pieces like uh-huh. like the little Italian beads. And so the story in the head note and the painting, Amy just did the perfect painting to go with this recipe. Because I was like, look, Amy, this is a recipe that I really want in there. It sounds insane, but they're delicious. And then it all came together. So I think that's an example of where it's inspired by a person. But then at the same time, we have crazy head notes, like a woman that feeds saltine crackers or fancy water crackers to her collection of ceramic birds. So it runs the gamut, I think, between fantastical and factual. 
We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Martha Hall Foose and Amy Evans. Don't go anywhere. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram at Salt and Spine. This week, you'll find a chance to win your own copy of A Good Meal is Hard to Find. You'll also find two featured recipes from the book. Every week, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nostrat and Carla Hall, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, and so much more. We also just launched our new Salt and Spine Cookbook Club, where we have a featured author and a virtual dinner party every month. We're kicking that back off in early 2021, so stay tuned there. Salt and Spine truly brings cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. You can join the Salt and Spine community today and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. And now back to our conversation with Amy Evans and Martha Hallfus, authors of A Good Meal is Hard to Find. You're both um, such highly praised storytellers, Martha, with your previous cookbooks, Amy, with all of your work at Southern Foodways and your art. What role do you think storytelling sort of plays in cookbooks as a genre? Oh, it's everything. And yeah. not good enough, I think, in a lot of times. I mean, mm-hmm. there are only so many head notes. My meemaw makes the best biscuits, and here's how to make them. You know, uh-huh. that's not a story. But I think when you look at some of the really wonderful cookbooks that are out there, you get in bed with them, and you can read them like a novel, and whatever is on your mind is swept away because not only are you reading the story of what the, the cook is trying to tell you, but then you also engage yourself in thinking about physically what would you be doing to make this happen? And I think it really just is a mind switch that we can all use these days. Well, yeah. I have um, Ronnie Lundy, who is a dear friend and fabulous person and mentor of mine and celebrated cookbook author herself. And um, mm-hmm. she years ago was in Saltville, Virginia at, Um, like the community center there and found this little narrow little like half inch thick saltful community cookbook that was produced in the eighties. And she bought a copy and took it home and she started reading it. And she called me and she said, Amy, every time I turn a page in this cookbook, I keep thinking about your paintings. You have got to get your hands on this cookbook. And so I ordered it and it ended up inspiring a dozen paintings um, that are now hanging in biscuit love in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, but the, I mean, that is an example of how storytelling, it just, it just, it gives you such a sense of place and it captures your imagination. And the women who were featured in this community cookbook, when, when the, it was made in the eighties, they were all 1980s. They were all 50 years old or older. And they came with little vignettes, little stories about who they were, whether they were, um, you know, a recipe submitted like by a granddaughter talking about how her grandmother made these special sandwiches and her, and she also loved to do the word search puzzle on Sundays and just all these little tidbits about a life that really sparked for me, all these, and, and Ronnie, thank goodness that she shared it with me, all these, you know, visual, um, all this visual inspiration. And so, and I, you know, and everybody's talking about community cookbooks now, 
with uh, mm-hmm. everybody being stuck at home. There's an article that came out in Vanity, Vanity Fair today that I saw online and um, all these cooking through COVID groups on Facebook are talking about community cookbooks. And now people are finally having time to spend with them and really read them. And you see them differently when you have the time, when you're not just looking for, you know, a biscuit recipe or spinach madeleine or anything. You know, you really you really see the details in it. And they are such great archives of people and places and, For and eras that are really interested in community cookbooks. The university of Southern Mississippi has got a digital archive of over 800 and they're putting, I think another 300 online. So you, you can wow. check that out. First of all, community cookbooks are the first cookbooks that I was really exposed to. My sure. family got Southern living magazine and would get the annual Southern living, whatever, but the cookbooks that we had in the house were from the Inverness Episcopal Church or the, you know, the Order of the Eastern Star or all of these different councils that were trying to raise money. But just the titles of the recipes are so funny. Like there's one from the Symphony League in Jackson, Mississippi, and Eudora Welty wrote the preface. And one of her good friends has a recipe called Squash Eudora, which chicken livers and squash with onions but squash Eudora I mean it's like nice but also like mm. and I love recipes the titles just are like Amy's paintings for a lot of these recipes you know Mrs. Munson's cold tongue I mean that's a short story title in itself yeah you know? And some of the serving suggestions, I love, I can't think of an example right now, but just like, you're like, what? (laughs) They're just, they're just so dear. Yeah. All those things. Some some real gems in those books. Martha, I know you also co-authored Asha Gomez's cookbooks, including My Two Souths and Mm -hmm. worked on those with her, which I think are really fascinating cookbooks and how she sort of blends her, her Indian cuisine knowledge with the knowledge she acquired of Southern cooking. What sort of lessons did you learn from working with her? Did it change how you think about Southern food? In a lot of ways, um, how she interprets things really expanded my view. First, I had to learn a whole new ingredient vocabulary, you know, from Kashmiri chili powder through, you know, all curry leaves and all of these ingredients that, you know, I wasn't that familiar with at all, but also to see how much she's embraced being a Southerner. That's what is at the forefront of um, seeing how people really have found a place and then to claim it their home is, I think, really impactful. And um, it was an eye-opening experience to see a Southerner that doesn't come with the baggage of having a long Southern heritage to see somebody, and I hate the term New South so much, but not to have this long family history here, but to see somebody embrace the virtues of what's here, but also have a strong understanding of, you know, all of the things that the South still faces. So to see her interpreting that through food was uh, really interesting. And it continues to be interesting to see how, her further evolution as a Southern chef um, continues has been really fascinating. 
That sort of gets at, I think, one of the probably the biggest challenge I think that people face when writing about Southern cuisine that I'm curious for your takes on as experts on Southern cooking, which is this sort of disconnect maybe between like the nostalgia and also the realities of a lot of the history and historical context of Southern cooking. And obviously, you know, in particular, a lot of the contributions that Black cooks have made that were often uncredited or sort of are now past due and crediting, how do you sort of approach the complexities of writing about and producing Southern cookbooks? Well, I think I think that's something I'll speak to our book, A Good Meal is Hard to Find, that people are surprised about because the stories are Southern and our perspective is Southern, but it's very it's a very international selection of recipes. There's pasole, there's, you know, the millefori that Martha was talking about. And it, it is about, you know, what we know and how people cook and how, um, you know, other cultures have influenced our interactions in the kitchen. And, and I think that, you know, when I, my head goes to the documentary field work that I did for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And for example, I did a project documenting the Lebanese community in the Mississippi Delta, which is rich and deep and strong and incredible. An interview I did with Carol Muhammad Ivy, whose mother was Ethel Wright Muhammad, and her father was Syrian, and he used to pick cook a big family meal, traditional Syrian meal, every Sunday, and he would butcher a goat on the dining room table, and she today makes meat pies with canned biscuits, you know, and it's just something that if, and especially in a place like the Mississippi Delta, where there's this long history of Chinese immigration, Sicilian immigration, Lebanese, and it just is of the place, you know, it is the fabric of the culture of the Delta, including, you know, African-American culinary traditions and all of that, but it's not separate, you know, it's all everybody experiences on a daily basis. And then like today in Clarksdale, Shimon's Rest Haven serving raw kibbe and tabbouleh next to, you know, spaghetti and chocolate meringue pie. And um, it's just that the people, if you're not of the South, you really see it um, in such simple narrow terms when it is so much more than that. And I think that this book, without getting weird about it, I feel like I'm getting weird about it, but um, that it speaks to that in a, a subtle kind of celebration without being totally intentional. I mean, Mar- I don't, Martha, and I, we weren't intentional about doing that. It just is how it happens. I completely agree. And I think that a lot of times there's this idea, oh, it's a Southern cookbook. It's going to be like a movie where we're all, you know, swatting, scratching and fanning and eating biscuits, mm-hmm. you know, 24 hours a day. But and I, I've said this in um, a lot of places, books and stuff. The Delta is just like a big major port city, but it's just in little clutches lined out along these rivers. And so the idea that there's not this deep rooted diversity is ridiculous. And I think the work of like our friend, Jimmy Thomas, who's wrote about in, I think my second book about his Lebanese family, or that it's not just this story in black and white. And my friends like Wally Joe, who's a chef in Memphis, whose um, family is Chinese and ran a grocery store in Cleveland, Mississippi, you can't take out how anybody influences anybody else. I mean, if you grow up next to your neighbor and your neighbor shares their supper with you, then it's your supper too. 
Well, we're a show on cookbooks, so I always like to, last question before we play our little game, I always like to ask people to finish this sentence. I'm curious if you could each tell me how you might finish this sentence. To me, cookbooks are what? Amy, do you want to go first? To me, cookbooks are novels. I like that. Martha, how would you finish that sentence? To me, cookbooks are an instruction manual. Well, we always end with a little game, so I thought we'd play a quick round or two of our game, and I wanted to borrow inspiration from your great book, uh, A Good Meal is Hard to Find, and I'm going to draw a card for you, which will give us an ingredient, and then I'm hoping if maybe you could tell us how that ingredient might evolve into a recipe and a name of a person who might be associated with that. How does that sound? Can I say how might in- in- inspire a painting? Yes. Okay. That'd be awesome. I would love that. I didn't know if that was too challenging, but I yeah, love that. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So you can pick the category. We have vegetables, proteins, flavors, which are sort of herbs and spices and things, and secret ingredient, which is sort of a wild card. I'd love to go for a wild card. Let's do a wild card. All right. I'm gonna- <laughs> We're both like total wild card. <laughs> it's the only wild thing in my life right now. So let's go. All right. I picked from the middle. We have Scrapple as our wild card today. <laughs> oh, I can't wait for this painting. Scrapple, yes. oh. right? Oh. Scrapple oh. reminds me of diners. And there would need to be a counter with a, you know, a, a cake plate on it. Scrapple. Scrapple crap. I I see an old man sitting at a counter singing a song about Scrapple every morning for his regular breakfast. And he would have Scrapple and scrambled eggs and wheat toast with butter on it and some grape jelly and hot coffee. What's his name? What do we name him? His name is Fred comes to mind. I don't know. I'm not going to fight it. Fred. His name's Fred. Fred. Okay. And he wears a suit. Um, He gets dressed to go to the diner from every morning. He wears a suit. And sings his little song about Scrapple. I love it. I love him. He sounds so cute. Yeah. I know. That's Get those brushes out. I know. Let's do one more. Martha, what category should we do? Oh, wild card. An- oh. Another wild card? Okay. Let's see what we have here. Oh, we have eel. Oh, eel. What does that inspire? I have never had it, but I've heard tale of this British dish, the jellied eel. But up in New England... You know, they have those big wheels that catch eels. I don't know if you're familiar with this. But, you know, <laughs> I, I don't. I don't know what are you this. talking about, Martha? <laughs> there are these eel trapping constructions. You can Google it. It's a real thing. So I will. I, I've never heard of this. Yeah. Google eel wheel. <laughs> but I would do a, um, I think I would smoke the eel. That sounds about right. And I think the way you do it is like you hammer their head to a board and then you strip them down like you're taking off some stockings. That's right, yeah. Peel them. Uh Uh-huh. I'm not kidding. (laughs) Don't squash, Eudora. Don't peel this eel. (laughs) So I think you would have to snatch its skin off and then smoke it. Sure. And I've not had jellied eel, so I think smoking it would be best. And then maybe flaking the smoked eel and perhaps making it into a spread of sorts. The only thing I liked about what you just said is that I now want to do a pantyhose painting. I need to do a pantyhose painting. Just a little final note. It's one of the things I love about the book is that we have, I have paintings of vintage bra boxes and 
packages of cigarettes and all kinds of things that are not really very appetizing, but they're in a cookbook. And I just am so tickled by that. Yeah. And I'm going to do a pantyhose painting. And I'm just imagining the great vignette we get of the person who runs the eel wheel and what their day-to-day life is like. <laughs> Y'all wanted you to put great jelly on that eel. Well, <laughs> for jelly eel. New England in Concord grape season, perhaps a little digestive. <laughs> sure. Yes. You know. Yes. <laughs> Well, that was oh my so much fun. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, Martha, Amy. It was just so fun. Oh, thank, thank you. you. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our website, saltandspine.com. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. You can also leave us a rating on iTunes. It helps a lot. And join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering digital classes for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey, I'm Kim Holderness. And I'm Ben Holderness. We host the Holderness Family Podcast every Tuesday. You may know us from the silly videos that we make online. Or a book about marriage called Everybody Fights. Or as winners of season 33 of The Amazing Race. Still can't believe that happened. Listen, we do a lot of stuff, but our podcast is our most favorite thing. Yeah, because every week we get to sit down face-to-face, talk to each other about marriage, family, mental health, or just anything that we want to know more about. Sometimes we have expert interviews, sometimes it's just us, but our goal is to bring some joy and laughter into your life every week. Our other goal is that maybe you will learn something as well. Right. So search the Holderness Family Podcast and check out our most recent episodes. We have one about staying organized with creators of the Home Edit. And one about being diagnosed with ADHD as an adult. We hope you'll join us. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.